Hello, Jordan. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know what I had for my Thanksgiving dinner in Norway? <laughs> Take a wild guess. If, it, if it's the gross salmon head, fermented salmon head <laughs> thing, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> no, there's no... that. Today's not a holiday here. Nobody's going to go through the trouble of making that. <laughs> it's too precious to, to for some stupid american holiday as they would probably say here um (laughs) no i had frozen pizza and donuts and i had a peanut butter and jelly donut which is just crazy it's like slathered on raspberry jam in the middle and then on the outside is this real peanut butter based frosting and then they put this chunk of um peanut brittle inside of it wow it was great so i watched some cartoons and had that (laughs) For dinner, it still feels like you're celebrating it properly because you're somehow abusing food in some way, and so I think it's good. Yeah, that sounds like a proper celebration of Thanksgiving. Yeah, it just it's it was actually way better than some of the family gatherings I've had. I remember one year very specifically. I brought my girlfriend for the first time to Thanksgiving dinner, and my dad decided to just change plans completely about what we were eating without telling anybody and then like we got to the house 30 minutes before dinner was going to start and he was like so i got all the shrimps i was like what are you talking about i hate shrimp first of all something that i guess you didn't know about me and like second of all we're, we're having turkey this is thanksgiving where's the stuffing where's the turkey where's the good things you eat on thanksgiving and my dad was like it's gonna be seafood thanksgiving i brought i bought a whole bunch of shrimps and then uh i left and bought my own pre-made dinner from Harmon's because i was so upset <laughs> wasn't he like so, trying to grill them outside or something too <laughs> Yeah, Winter. yeah, he had the, he did have the grill out. That was one of the worst surprises I've, I mean, you never know what you're going to get with my dad, but yeah. Yeah. Well, this will be my first year doing Thanksgiving, not meeting with any family because of pandemic stuff, um, but it's been so far amazing because instead of having to cook Thanksgiving dinners for like two different families and try to go to a third family's like dinner they're hosting... I've just been relaxing. I went and flew the drone today. Nice. You know, been cooking some some stuff kind of on the side pretty easily. Got a pie in the oven. Like, it's good. Sounds great. That's the way that Thanksgiving should be, I think. I I don't like stressful Thanksgiving. I like relaxed, delicious food Thanksgiving. (laughs) Yeah, it's the whole point of Thanksgiving in some ways. (laughs) I guess the point is to get... So, yeah. (laughs) Well... That's not really the point. Let's get real. It's to eat a bunch of food. It's long gone, the thanks part. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the, the season of engorgement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this is, I mean, Thanksgiving and Black Friday are, I think, a little bit why we chose the topic for today, um, which is waste, as you can mm-hmm. tell by the title of this episode. <laughs> If you're not here to learn about waste, where are you? You're in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And like I was saying in our uh, first false start introduction that we didn't record, uh, (laughs) I'm super excited for this topic uh, because I think there's uh, so many different ways we can talk about it. Um, There's lots of different types of waste, not just this kind of like consumer-ish waste that that prompted this, but I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, there's many different forms of waste. 
I have been thinking about this topic, well, to be honest, for the past 10 to 15 years, but quite intensely over the past week, I was thinking about it more and what it actually is. And I was having a lot of fun thinking about the definition of what waste is. I know we usually do this like Wikipedia (laughs) entry from our own (laughs) perspective in the beginning of these episodes, but this one in particular I'm excited about because the definition of waste is usually like things that can't be broken down quickly. So it's a matter of like how quickly can a material be broken down is usually what defines it as waste or not. Mm. Um, Because you wouldn't spit and then say that's waste because that's going to be gone without you even noticing it. But right. You know, I don't think about a banana peel being waste or whatever either really. Right. And some people do, right. Which is the cool thing about it is that there's, yeah, those gradations, but they, then they start spreading really far when we get into products and materials um, and like bioplastics, quote unquote, sometimes if they break down in like a hundred years or maybe even a thousand years, they're considered bioplastics and they're considered biodegradable. But, you know, if you want to stretch out that concept, everything is biodegradable because everything will eventually break down. Nothing will, nothing is permanently going to be stuck as a material unless you launch it into space and somehow it just keeps flying to the edge and never gets frozen and pulled apart i'm sure eventually some radiation would blast it apart over enough time so uh that's a fun thought for you (laughs) so yeah waste is really a subjective term and that's a great place to start i think yeah that that is interesting um because so i agree with you on the subjectiveness of it um but i feel like i have an even slightly broader definition of waste which isn't just on like material waste but like you know wasted energy or wasted effort. So I guess like my definition would be something along the lines of like um, any thing or like energy or action that doesn't go towards function of some kind. It's maybe the like. I think we can marry those two things together if we want yeah. to get all technical yeah. and, and physicist because <laughs> we can just say that, um, you know, matter has energy encapsulated and potential energy inside of it as E equals MC squared has told us. And so we can just look at potential energy as a conversion between different types of reality. So yeah, I think, I I think it's all, it's all there. I I agree with you. Everything you said. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of, of you being interested in, in waste or like minimizing waste, I should say uh, for 15 years, it actually reminds me of one of the first uh, little science projects we did together (laughs) at your house uh, where we were like looking at all these plastic uh, grocery bags that people were discarding. And we wanted to see if we could experiment with getting rid of them somehow or like making them not, not waste anymore. Right. By making them useful. So reusing them somehow recycling them at home <laughs> and so we tried to like boil down some plastic garbage bags <laughs> yeah grocery bags and they turned into the most foul substance that i think i've ever encountered <laughs> like, yeah it was pretty bad i you know there's there's something to be said i still don't disagree with our our like approach to how we should solve this problem which is like take a hands-on step the very the first step you know how to take and then work from there and learn quickly but we we were kind of too too uh 
<laughs> too excited and stupid to figure out that, that that step was a really bad idea and we should have skipped a few more and just spent more time planning instead of like doing something. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely like the you should measure twice, cut once thing. We didn't follow that there. We just like no, grabbed some grocery bags and stuck them in a pot on the oven. <laughs> in some water and the... You know, at yeah. least we didn't make too many toxic fumes. Like we did melt them down at a reasonable ish temperature, yeah, but yeah, they yeah. was untouchable and what were we gonna do with that? And then we had like I think we had to throw that pot away, obviously. Yeah. We just ended up with like a hockey puck of like grocery bag plastic and we're like, Okay, this isn't useful either. Yeah, in classic American fashion, we tried to solve a recycling problem and ended up having to get rid of a, a solid steel pot that definitely took, like, probably equivalents of 500,000 plastic bags. Like, we really screwed up on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think we've both gotten better at um, taking a more direct approach to handling waste since then um, mm-hmm. through, through lots of different ways, whether uh, it's implementation in your company and board games that you've made um i'm excited to talk about that because i think you've taken some cool steps there um or even in the the med device field that i work in i've been responsible for some waste reduction uh techniques at our company so uh lots of good stuff to talk about (laughs) ever since the grocery bag incident (laughs) yeah we've 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 luckily been able to take some positive steps after that and learn some lessons which is what it's all about you have to you have to use resources and uh you have to screw up and make things worse before you can make them better a lot of the time which i think is going to be a common repeating theme with waste uh for me at least and i I think it's pretty self uh prevalent prevalent to everybody that you can't get rid of things very easily in a sustainable way it's very difficult um dealing with waste in a in a positive easy non-committal uh fashion is almost impossible like you you have to commit a lot of time and energy and Mm -hmm. brain power and and will to actually handle a lot of the situations involved with waste whether that's in mass production or in your daily lifestyle it's very difficult yeah yeah exactly yeah it takes planning definitely it's not something that just like it's not like people are doing things purposely to create waste it's the it's purposeful action that reduces waste waste is like the byproduct of inadvertent action i guess in some ways like or a lack of action yeah if you if you just want to follow along with entropy and just let things fall into chaos then creating waste is natural yeah <laughs> I exactly would say. exactly <laughs> Um, but I, I do think that there, well, maybe we should define where we think waste lies. Like wh- how far does it go and where, where would we put our scales on it? Because I think that's an important starting point, um, both from our personal lives and like things that maybe we create and bring into the world or that we're part of that come into the world. I think that's my own impact is where I would start defining waste rather than trying to look at it from an outside perspective, because it's kind of hard to, to gauge ecosystems outside of your own life for me at least yeah um so yeah (laughs) being um a person who lives in like a first world relative consumer nation even though i'd say i'm on a low end of the spectrum of that I, i still generate a lot of waste through that so there's there's lots of places that i could highlight um, I guess to to start it off, I'll say that I generally kind of like think about 
waste that I generate into like two categories or pools. One is like material waste. That is like literal like materials that don't break down. And then I guess I would say like energetic waste, like the over expenditure of energy when like finding a more efficient route to that thing would have resulted in less like energy consumption somehow. Um, so I, I would say f I feel like my, my biggest category of waste is, um, materials waste. And I would, I would throw that almost all at, like packaging. I mean, the fact that I order stuff online and that the stuff that I buy at the store comes in packaging sometimes that pretty much any like electronic item I buy, which I enjoy purchasing, um, comes in packaging and almost always this packaging is plastic. And because of recent tariff issues, <laughs> this plastic is no longer recycled in my state and country. Um, that's a lot of waste. Yeah. Uh, and I that think is that's a, the, my, my primary source. I think, yeah, that is a lot of waste. And just to kind of dive a little bit deeper than that, because I think it's, it's easy to just label waste packaging as waste and like excess parts of things as waste, but it, it does jump a little bit further. Like when we're talking about materiality, like would you consider cardboard waste and where do you draw the line? Where do you start feeling good versus bad? Cause I think this, there is this guilt factor that, that drives mm -hmm. in with people where they justify certain materials or certain packaging or certain products. And then they, consider others to be bad and this everybody draws the line for themselves so i know this is kind of like a personal hard question but can you give more of a distinct yeah. definition i mean I, I will definitely say that i feel guiltiest about plastic waste um partially because of like you mentioned like this time to break down it's like whatever problem i've caused by like excess consumption or like this kind of excess material um that stays around longer from plastic waste but also like i'm also more aware of and i think society is more aware of um and there probably is more true like detriments caused by plastic waste whether these be like microplastics or like the estrogen like copying effects of plastics impact on human and animal health um, or all sorts of like things that come from plastic waste uh, i think are bad and when I look at like, let's say corrugated cardboard or something like this is like a relatively innocuous material that breaks down relatively quickly compared to plastic. And so I feel like less guilty about that. But then of course there's like this big like spectrum between there. Like if I look at a cereal box, I'm like, okay, this is like color printed cardboard. And it's like kind of weird that I like somebody like put all this color on this box when I would have bought this cereal anyway, cause this is the cereal I eat. So it's like, <laughs> now, I mean, there's a whole bunch of marketing stuff behind this, but it's like, now that this is my established cereal, I wish I could buy it in bulk. Right. Like that. It's just like, I don't have to have this like weird extra stuff that goes along with it. Um, every time I yeah. buy it. Um, so yeah, I would say that the plastics definitely are the things that I feel most guilty about. Yeah, that is, I mean, I mean, just by definition, I think plastics have been demonized uh, over the past five to ten years for for mostly good reasons. There are some plastics that, in certain places, get recycled or reused in good ways, but overall, the we're not using plastics in a long term, reasonable way. However, if if every product we used that was plastic lasted for sixty years, fifty sixty years. Um, Plastics would be like a no-brainer solution to so many things because they would actually be more environmentally friendly than a lot of other materials. But 
Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that they get so quickly turned over. Um, yeah. But on a similar stem, I think cardboard and paper products, while they seem like they would be endlessly sustainable, they're not either, even if they are recycled and not all of them are recycled. Um, right. Even when they are, they take energy, which usually is mm-hmm. is made by fossil fuels or coal or something else um, mm-hmm. that isn't going to help the environment. And the, those paper fibers can only be recycled up to a maximum of between two and five times, depending on the product that's starting out from the beginning. So mm-hmm. uh, as those break down, you're not going to be able to recycle them again. Um, and yes, some of the time they are biodegradable, but like other times they get mixed in with chemicals during these processes or right. something from the printing process is adding something into it that um, is going to leave it to, to break down over a longer period of time. Um, and this is true for basically the, the product lifestyle of every product. Um, whether you're looking at electronics, which just can be a nightmare. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of electronics are not being recycled because there isn't the, the, uh, I guess, incentive to recycle a lot of them financially. And, um, like rare, rare earth metals are, are in such minute quantities in most of these old products that, uh, I don't know. I'm sure the audience knows some of this, but the, the U S was shipping a lot of our recycled electronics back to China. And then China didn't want them anymore because it wasn't worth it for them because their economy was growing so much that it didn't make sense anymore. Mm-hmm. So there was like warehouses filling up with trash and old electronics and nobody wants them. They're just being buried. Uh, and th- th- those are a finite resource unless Elon Musk starts uh, mining asteroids before he dies. And if he doesn't, who knows if somebody else will take his place. <laughs> but um, even if we can do that, it, it yeah, there's a lot of things that, that can't be thrown back into this ecosystem just because uh, we would need some kind of automated robotics conveyor belt system to, to handle that process. And as long as it's human labor, it's not going to make sense. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think it's important to think about the fact that every single product you have, whether it's a piece of wood, whether it's made from paper, whether it is a tissue paper or whatever else, like the sourcing of that and the the shipping and everything that went into it from the beginning of its cycle, its, its birth, um, all the way through until you throw it away and it goes into a landfill and doesn't break down or it ends up somewhere else. I mean, you can't understand the implications of that. And you don't want to a lot of the time because it doesn't fit into your realm of everyday life of what you're usually thinking about. So when you start designing products, I think you really start opening your eyes on like, it's this never ending learning process. No matter how long you've done it, you'll still figure out how much worse product life cycles are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually curious to hear more about that. Cause I mean, like I, I design products in a very different environment than you and one that almost encourages waste which i'll talk about a little bit later um but i'd be kind of curious to hear about some products you've designed and kind of um where you where you see kind of waste i guess in in some of your industries and steps you've taken or seen others take to get rid of that yeah i think it's a really hard it's a really hard industry to break down for many different reasons. But one of the main reasons uh, that the board game industry in particular is, is quite a difficult one to tackle is because the vast majority of everything is sourced out of China. And right. anything that's sourced out of China, there are almost veils that you can't see past for sourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So 
like I have a, a manufacturing partner that has their own manufacturing plant in Shenzhen uh, and they own the plant. They own all the equipment there and they personally hire all the workers there and they are based out of Canada and they have direct contact with everyone at the factory uh, and they're all like looped in. So they're quite connected. But even still, um, there are certain things they can't do that they have to outsource to, to third parties, which is when mm-hmm. even their knowledge is going to basically disappear for the most part. Um, because I've talked to other people who've gone out to tour and uh, get to know many different factories and production lines like personally and they have sort of gone off the beaten track to find that certain things were being made like in rural villages unsustainably or sourced from places they shouldn't have been sourced from and then brought to the factory kind of in this under the table way and i think Mm -hmm. from what it from everyone i've talked to it sounds like that is basically just happening all the time there there's not really a regulatory system that's going to be strict or care about being strict about that in place so Mm. just to put that up as a preface like there's not a way to really guarantee that you're going to start your product life cycle off in a great way even if you know the factory and they work like that but um a lot of paper wastes uh and production waste is coming out of these kind of smaller to mid-sized factories that don't do testing where they don't have strong regulations or sustainable regulations for themselves. So the, the factory that I work with um, does 30% uh, of their paper products are made from recycled paper pulp uh, locally, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and then uh, the rest is sourced from sustainable, renewable forestry, which, you know, how much that can really mean is, uh, again, maybe a bit uh, confused because... It's happening in China, <laughs> even if it was happening right. in the U.S. I'm sure that a lot of these buzzwords are like just anytime you see buzzwords on packaging or production, you can't really trust them. You need to go. I know. Do it, research. It, it's like a, <laughs> it's an art to have your like legend available that says, oh, this buzzword's protected and actually means they've been audited and like checked. And this one is just something anybody can say. And right. Yeah. They, there's it, there's always 20. Anybody can say this buzzwords to everyone. It's <laughs> yeah. certified usually. Um, but anyway, just to kind of jump ahead, I I decided that I could make the biggest impact by making my design decisions more sustainable for the the product. So I chose Mm -hmm. to make small standardized boxes that, uh, use less chipboard and, um, were basically they fit more components inside. They didn't have dividers and all these crazy fancy plastic injection mold, uh, organizers and, usually you have to have a big box to stand out on the shelf if you want to sell to distribution or to retailers. Um, and I broke that model purposefully and was kind of fighting against that whole model for a long time and eventually broke through, I think, with the help of uh, many Japanese publishers gaining um, popularity in the U.S. and worldwide because they also had small boxes, which is where I got a lot, a lot of the inspiration so that was one good step, you know, uh, just reduce the size of the product, how much material actually goes into making that product because of that. Uh, and then choosing to make something that is either meant to last for a long time, like a very long time and has a, a almost like a an art, uh, it's like an art piece that also has a function uh, and should be something that you can reuse or or find a use for one way or another and if that's the goal then you make it last for a reasonable amount of time and hopefully make it recyclable and if that's not the goal 
then you make as small of, a, of an impact uh, material-wise as possible and make it completely recyclable. So it has the goal of being a very short lifespan on, on purpose um, and being able to enter back into the ecosystem. Having said that, I have been planning like a really big switch in how I make all of my products um, with a purposeful, very, very short uh, lifespan using even less materials and form factor, uh, which I'm hoping to like engage in the next couple of years. But, and that would also involve more local manufacturing and sourcing. So I'm not shipping things across the ocean constantly, but Mm -hmm. it's a difficult problem. So I haven't solved it and I'm nowhere near where I would like to be, but I hold myself to really high standards. And I think like 99% of the industry doesn't hold themselves to any standard and they just make the biggest boxes possible. Uh, they just want the cheapest prices for manufacturing, working with any partner who will give it to them at, at a like quality that makes any like amount of sense. So they have these poor quality products using extra materials, uh, very wasteful. Um, and then a lot of the time they'll make too many products at once because again, they save money on the production run. And they'll just Mm -hmm. ship off thousands or hundreds of thousands of games to be uh, destroyed on purpose because they can't sell them. But it didn't matter because in their economic model and on their financial sheet, it still made sense for them to make extras. So there's a lot of problems with the industry that they don't care about. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's kind of not to get into like the financial side of it too much too, because I also don't know the heavy details, but like exactly in that case of like excess production, there's there's times and places where excess production is effectively encouraged because making extra is such a low price and then destroying them and saying that they were like a write-off loss that you can claim on taxes or something ends up being yeah. more financially beneficial. It's, it really it's just doesn't kind of make insane. sense. Um, but to, to reflect back on some of the design choices you've made, um, I, I, I definitely like see that. Uh, holding true so for people who are less familiar with board games to kind of get an idea of <laughs> where some of this excess happens uh, when jordan talks about smaller form factors i mean like uh, a really common kind of like premium feature and that's not so premium but premium feature that people put into board game boxes is these um, like heat molded plastic inserts that are meant to be used as like organizers or dividers in the box um, but it's kind of really terrible that they exist <laughs> almost all of the time because uh, they create a lot of airspace in the box because they basically hold components up and there's all this like dead space under them. So they cr- make the box bigger. They themselves make their kind of like, there's a lot of unused plastic that's just like used as support structure. And then um, beyond that, everybody hates these things. They almost never work because there's not good thoughtfulness actually put into their design. So they're not even really functional in yeah. the end. Most people take them and then throw them away to get down to the exact same box that Jordan has created, which is basically just like, an empty cardboard box with the components in it. Yeah, it's funny. There's also been a big movement of people cutting their boxes in half or down to a quarter size and then re-taping them back up with the same box art cover on them and then putting those same components in there without the dividers and they all just fit because they're tired of carrying around huge boxes. Um, I've actually had a lot of people say that they particularly bought my game like they chose to buy my games on purpose because they want to be able to bring them and have a longer heavier economic game experience in a in something that fit in a small bag like that was the reason they bought the game and i think that is pretty funny that the design didn't matter as much gameplay wise it was just about the product (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's a big deal like like the the volume the space that board games take up is probably the most difficult 
component of the hobby. Like, I don't know if you, if you're somebody who's like really into this, you might maintain a collection of like 50 to a hundred games. And if you're like a big collector, then it's like way more. And if you think about the size of a board game box, that's insane. Like I have a full sized house and like, I am frustrated with the <laughs> board games that I have and how they fit in here. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a problem. Um, yeah, but then it's actually t- re- oh, sorry. Ahead. I just wanted to make a really funny, quick comparison. Like, Anybody who's ever owned an Xbox or a PlayStation, um, basically any of them, you can just think about that as the size of one standard board game box. Um, now, just imagine if you had 100 Xboxes or 100 PlayStations in your house. Where would you put those? That's what board game <laughs> collectors do, but they do it with like 500 to 1,000 of those. It's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. People have entire rooms and closets, and that's just like for the games they want to display. And then there's just like the archives of like just boxes on boxes in their basement. And it's, it's terrible. So if they could all be the size of something like Tokyo Metro, like it would literally cut down the total volume of my board games in a quarter uh, by 75% basically. Yeah. And then you'd only have to ship like a quarter or an eighth as many containers across the ocean. I I know this because this always happens to me. (laughs) One of the most popular games that was ever released called Root. Uh, I'm good friends with the company that did it and they, like, I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but they had, um, I think it was 40, 40 foot containers full of games on one of their shipments. Like that is so much space stuff. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> damn. Um, yeah. but to, <laughs> to your point about the, okay, if you, if, if you're going to try to make a game, uh, you, the, the one option is to also make it like a kind of work of art. That's also, you know, just like a permanent thing that can be used in a more, uh, maybe kind of like display-like fashion. Um, I think the one that yeah. sticks out to me from your collection is metal. I'm also looking at it right now. It's like sitting above me on the shelf. <laughs> uh, but I think that one kind of particularly fits that. Maybe you can talk about metal a little bit. Yeah, that's been a really controversial game, actually. because So it's a dexterity game that's made entirely out of aluminum and zinc pieces. The box is made entirely out of aluminum, and the pieces are either aluminum or zinc. And uh, because it's a dexterity game, I wanted it to be modular and you'd be able to play more than one game because I don't like that there's like huge boards and dexterity games that exist and there's one game you can play with them. You get bored of it quickly. You just kind of like don't care about it after a while. So this one is made to, to be used in a way that you can make up your own games, but also you can play like classic lawn games like Kub and... Uh, bocce ball or uh, you can play croquet and then i made a bunch of other new games you can play with it um but it is i mean aluminum is one of the hardest and least sustainable metals to, to produce so um that as like as a design challenge I'm, i was trying to make a series of games i'm still um releasing them that are based off just one material so this one is only made out of metal there's nothing else in it but every every component in the box is made out of metal um but because of that, it's something that you like. You're never gonna throw this game away. I would imagine no. you would give it to somebody, or like if you didn't want it anymore, somebody would would want it because it's a fun like game you can play on a table. It's something that if you found from like the Viking era, it would still be applicable and usable, right? They have found old games that Viking era um, people would play, uh, and the pieces were still like in good enough condition and everything that they could still play them. They're just made like just nice little tactile things, really small, fit in a small package or roll up or whatever. So that's what I like 
that's what I liked about that from a, a design approach. And so because of that, I decided that this would be a, a lifetime product. It's, or even longer, um, mm-hmm. something that you're purposefully not going to be getting rid of. You're, you, you're oh. going to do something with it and be, be, there's something about the product that as a relationship, you're going to find a home for it if you don't want it anymore. Versus, yeah, exactly. I, I don't think you're going to do that to a board game always. <laughs> right. Well, and coming back to the idea you talked about earlier with plastic and, well, if the products we made out of plastic were things that we kept around for 60 years, then it wouldn't be a big deal. I mean, it's the same thing with this. Like, sure, aluminum may not be the most sustainable metal, but, like, like I'm not going to accidentally bend a card in this game that's going to render it obsolete. Even if I lose one of these metal pieces, the game's still playable because of its, like, freeform nature, you know, that it mm. has all these kind of adaptable games and it's meant to be creative use. Like, And it looks great. Um the pieces are pretty like I like sitting them out on my desk and stuff. Like that's how Thanks. I had them back in my <laughs> office. Like I just had these pieces sitting around cause they were cool. And so, um, I, I definitely think this like fits that model of like, okay, well if, if you're planning on it being a permanent thing, then you get some additional freedoms in your design choices and you make different design choices. Yeah. And I think as a, a design approach, it's as, as long as you're keeping that in mind and you have a plan for, what happens if this goes wrong? So aluminum is recyclable and it's not that hard to recycle. Um, so that was another concern is like, if you if you work with a metal that is like a pop metal, like, so pop metal is just some random alloys you probably don't know about or you wouldn't be able to break it down because pop metals vary in their alloys um, and there's not they're not easy to separate. So like almost every mass consumer product that's made out of metal is made out of pop metal from China. It's really flimsy. If you have a belt buckle that you don't know, like, it's a specific material, it's made out of pop metal. And if you cracked it open in half or whatever, you would not be able to recycle it. Like, it has to go in the trash. So um, making something out of just one material in uh, in an alloy that you know is going to be uh, recyclable is, is important to think about when you're talking about materiality as well. So that was another one of the reasons why I chose t- to use specifically, um, aluminum in, in like a pure, pure enough grade that it could be recycled. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's one way to approach the design process. I still f- feel conflicted about it a little bit, like making anything. I don't think I'll ever get over it. I don't think I'll ever get over like making a product and releasing it and feeling good I mean, about it unless I know it's purposefully supposed to be destroyed and go back into an ecosystem like in a healthy way 100% sure. and I know it's going to happen. And like that's almost impossible. So I guess there's no win case scenario. Yeah. I can only try to like do the best I can and get other people to be inspired to do the same thing and follow along with what I'm inspired by. Like yeah. How do you feel about that with medical stuff? Because you're talking about designing products with waste as a as a goal. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I want to tell a quick anecdote or story before I jump into medical stuff. It's a nice bridge between aluminum and medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to actually work at a, a different medical device company, and I, I worked in, like, this low-level, like, tester manufacturing line role. And one of the things we had to do was like test products as they came off the line. So we would like test, you know, 10% of them and make sure that batch was good. And the products came in these little aluminum cans that we had gotten manufactured somewhere else. And so my department would generate like literal thousands of these aluminum cans. They're about the size of a soda can every day. And we like the company policy at the time was to just take these cans and throw them in the trash. (laughs) 
like when we were wow. done with them. And so like me, me and the other people in the department were like, hey, that's messed up. <laughs> so we started taking the time to like save them and we got approval to like allow them to be crossed back, back out of the biohazard facility. And we took them uh, to a, a metal recycling place and the company let us keep all the uh, the money we got paid for taking them to the local metal recycling place. And it paid for our lunch forever, like indefinitely. We all got free lunch. What was that much? <laughs> because, That's a lot. Yeah, it was that much <laughs> aluminum every day. <laughs> Which is pretty, wow. uh, it was, but it was like, it was nice feeling to be able to just look at this like individual instance of like, I would say a pretty significant amount of waste and just divert it with like the simplest little decision, you know? somebody taking time out of their 30 minutes out of their day once a week to go run them over to the recycling plant. Yeah. Um, in fact, that that's sorry to, to cut in again, but that, that makes, I want to bring up a good point, which is that um, you can have uh, a model for your business, which in order for the business to run and make money, like initially it just has to keep in mind the costs of materials and uh, the life cycle of those materials because of the availability. So two good examples of this are uh, Coca-Cola making cans and, and basically any company making aluminum cans. They have consistently gotten thinner and used less aluminum, not because they care about the environment and the aluminum, but because the price of aluminum um, has fluctuated and also they need to keep in mind that um, if they can recycle and reuse this aluminum, it's cheaper than buying fresh aluminum so when you melt down an aluminum can you'll be surprised how little aluminum you get out of it now it's very very minimal that doesn't mean that it's a good thing though because well the point i'm trying to make is that they didn't put that in as an initiative um and then we can look at uh tesla right now making batteries and there are certain um metals that go into these batteries that there's a reason why batteries haven't been widely available on mass scale for like longer uses and bigger uses like cars it's because the, the materials aren't available like in mass currently. Mm-hmm. So certain materials have to be recycled in that ecosystem in order for that to even work because we don't have, we don't even have the capacity or, or ability to know where to mine enough for it to be a single use. So right. in order, in order for Tesla to survive, their batteries need to be recycled. So that's another necessity within the marketplace. Um, and then we can look at businesses that are choosing to do things sustainably from the beginning because of their business model and making those choices so that their products are just sustainable uh, from the get-go as their their choice uh, rather than as mm-hmm. their economic need. And, and those two variables are important. And I think uh, thinking about that and which companies you support is, is also a big thing. So sorry for the tangent, but I just that, that made me think about that. No, I think it can be tied back in really well because uh, speaking of economic need, I think that's where a lot of waste happens inside specifically med device or medical device companies because the margins, the like profit margins on any given med device are really large. The whole challenge is like the R&D and development. As soon as you get that product on market, at least especially in the US where we have these like really high health costs and kind of this like spiraling upwards uh, tug of war between like insurance companies and med device companies, you just have these huge, huge margins. And so when you start talking about the idea of waste and like, oh, well, we get to save 20 cents per med device if we like, you know, don't use these aluminum cans and instead use a thinner aluminum can or no can, like it's just nobody has to think about that because there's so much room there. 
Whereas when you think about Coca-Cola or something where it's like, okay, your margins are so razor thin on these, like what you're putting out, any little like quarter of a cent that you're saving on each can is like a huge deal. (laughs) Um, So you don't have that here. And so um, it's exactly that kind of decision that, or I guess market trend that makes so that companies in med device space don't have to look at it as carefully. And so coming back to this aluminum cans example, like it was great that my little team got to divert a few thousand cans a day or whatever. Um, but these were just like, as I mentioned, these were like 10% or less of the lots. The other 90% went out to consumers. And when you're a doctor opening up one of these cans in the OR where there's not like a recycling bin sitting in the corner, it goes in the trash with the biohazard stuff. And like, it's never going to get recycled. Um, and so like, that's a clear example of just like that can like doesn't need to exist for these devices to work. Like they could choose many different packaging options, but like aluminum can was the chosen one for whatever <laughs> reason. I wasn't part, I wasn't part of that decision, but um, <laughs> you can see like as an example of the waste, but like to go even further on that product, like I think it's med device packaging where things start to get like really wasteful. And I, I call it, I call it wasteful because again, it's this idea of like, discarded plastics and other things that aren't put into recycling and they're not really useful in any other way after they're used once, but they do have a use when they're being, for the most part, um, when they're being made, which is this idea of like sterilization packaging. Um, so like there's this whole like incentive for med device companies to always minimize risk to the patient. And of course, to themselves getting sued or to the physician getting sued. And so every action they take is generally motivated by that. And one of the ways to de-risk stuff is to just like package it more. Like it increases its sterilization. It decreases the chances it's going to break before it gets into the patient or into a physician's hands. Um, And so it's just like there's this like crazy trend in med device to just like increase packaging requirements And so the standard used to be, for example, that you could wrap sterile devices in this, like, um, this paper cloth. And I don't really know the recycling properties of this paper cloth. I can't comment on it. But that was later moved to having this new industry standard of Tyvek packaging, which is basically a paper layer and a plastic layer. But in the last 10 years, that trend has been to double or triple package the same device. So you do one sterile barrier of paper and plastic, another of paper and plastic, and another of paper and plastic. And then you put that inside a plastic bag, and then you put that inside a cardboard box, and you put that inside foam, and you put that inside a cardboard box. And that's the standard like packaging configuration for med devices now. Oh, that's almost the same standard as how you package candy in Japan. <laughs> individually wrapped. And then they put those five of those individually wrapped candies into a separate package. And then there's about 10 of those inside of one bigger package, which could be inside oh. of a box. It's insane. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. <laughs> that's especially bad for candy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I think it's this, yeah, it, basically to sum it up, there's like these, these trends in med device to really push packaging there's just like this pressure upwards pressure on more and more packaging all the time. I mean, when you can afford that and it's such a fractional cost inside of your, your model and your production, it gets much easier to justify for 
companies who also feel like they're not being masked, their products aren't being mass consumed. So it doesn't matter as much, right? It's so easy to justify anything yeah. when you're creating something. It's, it's ridiculous. Oh yeah, exactly. Like, only, uh, only 40,000 people a year are going to use this, not every consumer. So therefore it's fine. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. product is more important than all the other mass consumables. So I'm okay. Like they're first in line to change and I can wait a while. <laughs> yeah. I'm med device. This is health that we're talking about. Um, <laughs> right. But but I think there's another big trend that pushes for waste in med device, which is uh, this idea of single use. So uh, when a med device is classified, there's like there's one big classifier fork that it goes through in the in the tree of classifying your med device, and that one of those forks is is it single use or is it reusable? And there's actually like a lot of incentive, I would say, for med device companies to choose single use because. As soon as a med device company says it's single use, they are no longer on the hook for being responsible for the product failing or being unsterile or being dirty when it's reused again. And since they're the last ones to touch it before they send it to you, they're confident that it's going to work the first time, but they're much less confident it's going to work the second time after you reprocess it to reuse it or whatever. And so from like a risk in like litigation standpoint, med device companies are incentivized to choose single use. They're also incentivized to choose single use because of testing requirements. If I say my device is only single use, I only have to show that somebody can open the package and use it. But if I state that my device is reusable, I have to invest a bunch of time and money into doing human factors usability testing and like reprocessability and like cleaning capabilities and like material compatibilities and solvent compatibilities to show that the device can be cleaned and reused again. Hmm. And so, so there's a, f- a failure and a breakdown in, in how the categorization system has been set up or is there some corruption behind this? Do you think? Um, I think it's just a breakdown in how the categorization system has been set up and what that ultimately leads to is like incentive for the med device company. Now, obviously, there's going to be back pressure from the consumer. Like, you can't just be making, like, capital equipment that's like, oh, yeah, this is single use. If you, like, buy this $100,000 thing, like, it's all, it's all you now. <laughs> Titanium, single-use fork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so consumers, the hospitals and physicians and insurance companies would push back. But for, for things that are more kind of in the disposable price realm, and that ceiling is really high, in med device as anybody who's ever been to a hospital in the u.s would know <laughs> um there's a there's all sorts of leeway for companies to get away with just choosing that single use pathway and that's that's been a big problem this is really yeah i i i completely agree that i think a huge issue with all of this from start to finish is that the the delegation of responsibility is constantly being pushed back and forth so some mm-hmm. people think that the the responsibility should fall on the producer and sometimes the producer thinks the responsibility should fall onto the base material uh creators or foresters or whoever and then when we go to the next step then the designer thinks that the responsibility should fall on the company that's hiring them to design the product not on them as the designer and then we go Mm -hmm. further and the consumer thinks that the the delegation should fall onto the um producer or designer and then uh, we can go further, and then the recycling company thinks that the delegation should maybe fall onto the consumer, and that maybe the government thinks that the it's none none of it is their problem, and they're just there to try to keep the peace and make things work. Um, <laughs> but no, nobody wants to take responsibility in this step, and I think this is a huge problem. 
Um, I've talked to a lot of designers and product designers um, over the past couple of years about this in particular, because I think that it's the biggest decision should fall on the the company designing the product. And that also means it falls on you as the designer, even if you're hired by a company. It's your your responsibility to produce, uh, or sorry, to um, at least pitch or put together some kind of alternative plan for these products that would be more sustainable or that would be more reasonable for the product lifecycle that could work in an economic game for the company. And yes, it is possible. You might have to work a little bit harder, but I think in the end, uh, you'll be better off both the company and you will be, will be better off from a marketing standpoint and from a sustainability and uh, economic standpoint. So um, I think it falls on the designer more than anyone because they are the ones actually uh, imagining this thing coming to life and they need to be responsible ultimately for its beginning and its end um, and its use uh, while it's in use too. Um, but most of the designers I've talked to have felt that it should fall on the company choosing to manufacture and make the product because they're giving them the pitch, the initial pitch. It's mm-hmm. the designer's, uh, I guess, job to fall within that framework or those that box that the, the manufacturer has put them in. But I disagree with that. I think that if you if you show alternatives and go beyond what you were asked to do, you can find a solution that's better for everyone. So... Yeah, I think the manufacturer is more responsible than the consumer as well, because at an individual level, it's too hard for consumers to um, be able to change an ecosystem because the ecosystem relies on the production as the first step. And you can't really change the first step two steps down the ladder. It's it's not that's not how the system is set up to work unless you can rally together and, and boycott and in a group think kind of a way, which... Mm-hmm. has happened here and there, but it hasn't had any major impacts. And a lot of the impacts were just a feel-good story that made you feel like you changed and then uh, put off your responsibility for another 10 years, i.e. trying to get rid of plastic straws, which is, that was a joke. Um, that had almost <laughs> no impact. Uh, and a lot of the time it caused worse impact because people bought metal straws and threw them away. Um, There's just like nothing good came out of that for the most part. Like maybe some sea life was was helped from plastic straws not making it into the sea, but more problems were created that people don't talk about. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's much harder to solve on a consumer level, and I think it should come down to the, the designers and the manufacturers. And people that are harvesting the resources a lot of the time are incredibly impoverished, uh, and they don't have the means to make choices about their lifestyle. They like right. They have a way to produce. Like in China, I know of quite a few different places that source from one family living on top of a mountain going out and uh, cutting down trees every day and bringing them in and like just going into this piecemeal workshop and uh, making little wooden pieces and sculpts and whatever and then just outputting those every day and they have paint buckets constantly spinning and there's just like fumes it's not good for their health it's not good for the environment there's nothing nothing really positive coming about that as a model to create things Mm -hmm. and they don't have a way out because they live rurally and they don't really have another opportunity in front of them. And yeah, they, don't they don't have, have like the economic way out or the like educational way out. It's not like they have the means to sit down and really think about, okay, well, what equipment can I buy to like make this whole process more sustainable? Like they don't have that. Right. And if you have the power as a, as a company or, or designer to go out and teach or, or like put a little bit of investment in order to create your own, uh, 
sustainable sourcing, which has been done many times and is very doable. Uh, you can completely change the trajectory of the people working as well, and you can give them uh, more power in the decisions that they make within their own processes. Um, and you can give them more of the cut in order for you to also have gains in other ways. Um, everybody wins in that situation. So that's really the steps we need to take. But unfortunately, capitalism doesn't uh, bend the knee to that uh, nice moral gesture. <laughs> yeah. It's all about profit. Gains. Uh, I, I think... Yeah, I mean, speaking of capitalism, I think that's one of the challenges here too, right? It's like the economics of it, like at every level. Like if if you are somebody who um, ascribes to the like designer responsibility component of this, like we already talked about or established kind of at the beginning that like the, the default mode is effectively waste and it's it's additional action or effort, which probably equates to additional time or money um, to find ways to reduce waste. And so the the cheapest path in your in the company hiring a designer is hiring a designer who's willing to develop the design with not thinking about um, sustainability or like reducing waste in mind, it seems like. And that's like a, a weird breakdown of this incentive structure. But I don't I don't think it's correct. Um I think it really boils down to, maybe we can blame it all on the economists, right? Um we can say that uh they it seems like the designer who's designing things without thinking about sustainability in mind is cheaper. But in reality, like the idea of sustainability has value. It's just not calculatable into the company's like P and L sheet. <laughs> and so it's, it's trying to, it's economists, I guess, trying to like capture what is the value of sustainability and where is this value getting diverted and like, how does it come back into society? And I think there's been a lot more work on that. I'd say in the past uh, 10 to 20 years, which is just kind of like economics of waste and pollution and runoff and everything else, which is trying to like determine um, value of sustainability. And if companies could see that more and society could see that more, maybe it would start to make more sense to governments and capitalism alike. Yeah, I mean, you can put, right, I, I agree with what you said. I think that there is one caveat in that, though, um, because the the profit and loss sheet can definitely include sustainable sourcing into the revenue stream to make sense, but it's a matter of looking at more opportunities and taking time to figure out how those shift in, which I think is what you were, were saying. Um, mm -hmm. But it's like, you could put the blame on on that initial business spread or you can put it on the government uh not regulating things correctly so making it easier to produce coal or fossil fuel energy or whatever because there's extra incentives mm -hmm. for the good of the economy as a whole or maybe just special interests being involved whatever it is mm -hmm. um but the when it comes down to at the end of the day i think the company from the beginning needs in its uh design choices and its proposal of what its company mission is what, what what is this company being made for that is the point when you need to have the moral decision of of what you're going to put your foot down on or not um it can't just like sift in later after the company's been established that, that that doesn't seem to work according to history so um this is why tesla has been successful in like for the most part uh pushing with hard limitations on themselves uh for how their electric cars will function and how sustainable they'll be and how they will create their batteries or recycle parts of their batteries right because from the beginning mm -hmm. they said they were going to do that 
if they hadn't done that from the beginning, then it's kind of anyone's game. And this is also why I think a lot of the other automotive companies are sort of falling in between here and there and dabbling in hybrid and like using unsustainable sourcing to make a lot of their electric vehicles, etc. Um, because they're just about creating something that will sell and mm-hmm. who cares what happens to it after it sells. It doesn't matter to them. Yeah. Um, they just right. want to make the profit. So yeah, those, I think that the you, you have to set up the business from the beginning to have the right incentives and the, the right goals. And the government should help by regulating certain industries, but I don't think we can count on that anymore. I think we have to make the decision as the capitalists, as the companies. We have to be the ones that, that tell the government we don't care what they think or what they regulate. Uh, we're going to create this product. And then the demand for this product after it's shown why it's good and useful and, and why you would choose this product over something else will move the model of uh, policy rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely see how it would work that way. I think it's hard because I, I feel like I can see responsibilities at every level. You know, like every every piece, every person of the puzzle has their kind of own piece of responsibility somewhere, <laughs> or at least you can imagine they do. And maybe some pieces are more effective, like the capitalist business purpose design side probably is the most effective piece, but like educated consumers also have been shown to like, you know, produce less waste and do better, like make better choices. And like people can make decisions to take like less wasteful paths or choose to support less wasteful companies. And I think kind of like you hinted at with this, like kind of car model stuff, consumers may not be aware of, you know, that one electric car is more sustainable than another. And yeah, we can put that blame on the company and I think we should. (laughs) But also, like, if I become educated about that, I can also choose to make better decisions, support companies that I feel like have better missions. I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes the company's mission is lost on the consumer. Um, And I wonder if companies could find better ways. And you can throw the responsibility back on the company and say, company, you need to find better ways to get your mission across to your consumer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it also seems like a little bit has to be on the consumer side, too, to try to learn anything at all. It's way easier to say that though, coming sitting in our position where we have the we have enough money to make decisions, right? Like yeah, yeah. For the sure. vast majority of people on Earth don't have the money to make decisions, and so their their decisions in front of them are almost always going to be limited to non-sustainable, poor decisions for the environment. So yeah, yeah. If if the fact that that the vast majority of consumers don't have a choice anymore because they don't have uh, the monetary means to make a choice, then yeah, the issue falls again on the producer. So I, I agree with you once uh, you get into the 1%. <laughs> and if you're not in the 1%, um, then I guess, you know, tough luck. The, the the producers and the government made the decision for you for what you're allowed to consume based off of your means, which is too bad. Yeah. So that's, that's basically why I draw the line there instead of saying it's on the consumer. Because I do agree. Once you get to a certain point, then it does it, it should fall on the, you as a consumer yeah. and as an individual. But... Yeah, right. there's the line is pretty high up, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy that sustainability is a luxury, effectively. Like, that the consumer is the one also that has to pay 
so much more additional price for like the sustainable goods. Like oftentimes these like whatever increased costs are passed on. Um, and especially so because of this like one percenter sustainable stuff is only made available to people who can afford it anyway. So it's like, it's, it's a kind of frustrating <laughs> niche, <laughs> I guess in some ways. So kind of coming back to the board game concept from the very beginning, um, something you, a statement you made at the beginning um, was that board games are produced in China. And I mean, that's all an economic decision for the most part, right? Like, yeah, China probably has some also, maybe there's certain types of pieces or certain types of processes that are primarily in China. So they're even hard to locate other places, but you could produce a board game outside of China. It would just be, you know, $200 or something for a board game instead of Fifty years. I mean, a lot of $30. a lot of games are are made in Germany. Not not like a lot, a lot in the in the entire market share, but like a decent amount. I don't know the exact percentage sure. off the top of my head, but yeah. So it is possible, right. but it's more expensive, like you're saying. So <laughs> yeah, and that's where the the economics come down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's tough. On kind of a fun a fun note, though, um, now that we've gone through all the reasons why it's difficult to be sustainable and how waste is a subjective term for many reasons and justifications. What are some <laughs> cool products or materials or things that you've come across that even if they were just ideas and didn't get executed that you think were really cool? Um, I have one on the tip of, tip of my tongue. I'm just going to jump in real quick. There sure. was uh, this Kickstarter for some silverware. Ironically, it was called silver silverware because it was actually made out of um, different types of meal. So it was like, cornmeal or um mm -hmm. different wheat or whatever and then they would put some spices in there and stuff so what you would do is you would use it and then you'd eat it after so uh they had one that was like chai spiced forks and um yeah they were made in <laughs> india and i know that they were it was really unfortunate because uh i remember my girlfriend backed for a bunch of them because we were really excited to, to eat our silverware mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, uh they actually ended up just not being able to ship any outside of India. So they just kept everybody's money. And I know that they made some and used them in India because I have a friend in India and he said that he got to use them and eat them. So like, at least that was successful in a country that needed sure. them probably. But mm -hmm. um, it was unfortunate that they didn't hit mass market and that a lot of people that backed them didn't get them in the end. But that was a really cool product, yeah. I thought. That's interesting. I, I get, so I, I guess this isn't like a specific product, but more like a product concept. Um, I'm really interested in the idea of energy waste as well, because uh, unlike like physical material waste, which I see is like, we just talked about the product of like economics and like, oh, well, we need a package for our thing or it's going to get damaged in shipping. And like, well, it's like kind of like this necessity, um, energy waste is this like interesting thing that nobody wants. Like they would love to harvest all energy and like use it in a different productive way. It's just kind of like a hard puzzle to solve. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, it's, it's always interesting to see the creative solutions people come up with to like, try to like recapture energy from like weird places. You don't think about it being like lost. So, um, I'm really into like piezoelectrics and like this idea of like turning kind of like, uh, deformation forces into energy, like electrical energy that you can somehow use. Yep. And so I've seen ideas, for example, of like, you know, clothes or like shoes and things that have like these like piezoelectric bands in them that like produce electric currents that so you could like charge a battery or like charge your cell phone or something just by like the fact that you're walking around and that deformation that goes into the energy of your shoe or when you bend your arms like and harvesting that 
Like no longer are you just moving this cloth or this piece of rubber for nothing. Like moving it is also generating some energy back and you're like harvesting from it. So I've been super interested in those types of things. Um, and there's, they, yeah, there's all sorts of different manifestations. Um, but I, I really like them. Yeah, that's awesome. In fact, I have a few examples uh, of some of those that I think are really cool. So uh, there's a company called Ocean Power Technologies. Uh, they are making buoys that, uh, it's, they don't use piezos, but they're using the yeah. waves from the ocean to slowly gather energy from the moving up and down of the buoy. Um, mm-hmm. And they've been able to actually generate like a decent amount from a lot of their prototypes, and they're looking to scale up now. And uh, their stock has been performing very well, and they've been growing mm-hmm. a lot as a company. So that would be pretty cool if, if some coastline cities would be able to get power, or if you could like go dock up your boat offshore a couple miles and be able to just fuel up an electric boat or something in the future. That's not out mm-hmm. of the question. It would be really cool. Um, yeah. Tokyo uses sidewalk plates, so they'll have parts of yeah. the sidewalk. And then, uh, yeah, people just walk over them all day, and it creates a lot of a lot of energy from just everyday use and mm-hmm. when you think about that it could be everywhere right but wearables i didn't actually know people had been implementing them in wearables because i didn't think it would generate enough electricity to do literally anything <laughs> do you yeah, have any, it's not any much. idea <laughs> uh, it's not much um and i think that's basically the thing that's keeping them out of that kind of market um, very much is that you're not you're you're getting such little power from any individual implementation of it that you'd really need to like be really wholly sold in on this idea and have it be like kind of infused into everything that you wear and everything that you do to like become a worthwhile amount of energy. But that's also like such a ridiculous (laughs) proposition. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think there's, I think other cool examples are like um, heat differentials. So like there's lots of different processes we do or use that generate heat, but you can like generate electricity from differences in temperature. And so like, um, and I always talk about electricity cause it's like the easiest to manipulate and store for humans for some reason, like we can mm-hmm. grab that and use it later. But, um, yeah, I think there's all sorts of different interesting ways that people try to like harvest heat, whether it's in like manufacturing processes, um, or even in like some wearables are starting to benefit from that. Now, for example, they'll take heat differential between like your body or a piece of your body and some other part and, uh, use that to like generate energy. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, we're starting to use, see that in implantables too. And this is kind of crossing away from waste and more into like biofusion stuff. But um, there's also like implantables, uh, implantable technologies that utilize like glucose, for example, from your blood and use that to like convert it into electricity that can be used for like implantable neurostimulators. Whoa. So definitely some interesting heat so or I, I guess energy harvesting stuff out there. So wait, do those feed off of, they feed off of heat in your blood and convert that into into electricity or they, they use something else? Uh, there's some that try to use heat and there's some that use glucose, like so just like chemical cool. reaction stuff. But yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. I mean, really, when um, you think about it, how, how much heat waste our bodies are generating or animals are generating, it's pretty, oh, it's, yeah. it's a lot. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I remember um, you and I had brainstormed the idea for a product once of like a, heated water recycling basically um we talked about like installing we kind of developed this like i wouldn't say prototype because it was never built but like a concept drawing of 
like drain systems that basically allowed like um, hot water that was run down the drain to like run over these like grills or coils that would like um, bring that hot water or like basically reheat a different set of water that went back to the water heater. So you were like recycling heat energy from water mm-hmm. in homes. I remember talking about that. Um, I kind of wish something like that could be created still because like heating water is really expensive energetically. So if you could like harvest some of that back, it'd be really nice. Yeah. I mean, then actually that, that was like a really niche way to heat water when there's no sun out, right? Because solar panels have proven to heat water more efficiently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, if it's overcast and it's raining and you want to take a shower, then what do you do? Then maybe you have the, uh, the the side water spout windmills. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those two. I like that though. I, I wish we had, we were at a stage where we had more ways to harvest our own body energy releases because there is just so much and if we could harvest more energy from the sun and then turn more of that energy in our body from the sun and from other stored sun energy into other (laughs) purposes like basically we're just looking at at ways to manipulate uh life and chemistry to electricity more or less yeah everything goes back to electricity but I, i think even like so when you talk about design for example like in designing products with better packaging or better materials, waste handling, like it's the same for like energy usage, right? I mean, you, you design a lot of static products, so they're not like, most of them are energy using, but like thinking about like a light bulb, for example, like the fact that, I mean, LEDs are popular now, which is nice, but like incandescent light bulbs, like so much energy was wasted through heat. And there's always this kind of like pressure to like, okay, light to heat ratio, like how much light can I get for how much energy I use um, instead of having it just like, spill out into heat energy which is almost always not very Mm -hmm. useful (laughs) um and i think we've done a lot better i guess nowadays in thinking about those like forms of waste yeah i mean you almost have to when you're scaling up production as well with so many human beings wanting the same product uh we -hmm. wouldn't be able to all live off of edison bulbs it wouldn't it wouldn't be possible right uh because they'd burn out so fast and like it just wouldn't make sense to make them anymore. And they would use more electricity than we'd want to afford. It is really interesting that, that we have become so efficient because of economic drives though, which kind of brings back the point that we are in, I think in this seesaw with capitalism and sustainability. Like, <laughs> how are we going to get off this seesaw anymore? We need to <laughs> implement some kind of weird social democracy with like, a capitalist base that is allowed to take off as far as it wants to go after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, that's a definitely a difficult challenge. Um, one kind of form of waste we haven't talked about cause it's a little bit more metaphysical or something <laughs> is this idea of like wasted effort, which I understand physically you can connect back to like wasted energy and connect that back to wasted material. Um, so, for example, if I, I waste my day thinking about something nonsensical or I'm somehow non-productive or non-functional for a day, but I'm still eating a cheeseburger or something, that's a waste of a cheeseburger. <laughs> but, <laughs> but thinking about wasted effort kind of like in general, um, I think there's a lot of examples in, in society just because there's so many people operating in so many different directions. There's a lot of examples, I think, of wasted effort, which is also kind of a shame to think about not to bring us back to the negative side of things, but um, it, no, that's a good since we're talking about democracy and 
capitalism and like social forces, it seems like effort kind of falls into that realm too. Yeah. You know what I like about what you just said uh, is that you think about effort and all that I think about when I think about that as a, a concept is time, like wasted time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they're not the same thing, are they? Like I could waste time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm wasting effort because I could conserve my effort. Like if I'm just resting on the couch for two hours, not doing much of anything, but just kind of letting my mind roam, I might just have such a drive uh, about what I want to do and just hit it so hard after. Um, Whereas if I decide to like be angry and just ruminate in my mind for two hours and then when I'm done with that, I still haven't moved off the couch, but like I probably don't have the capacity and the, the brain power to do much after that. So, um, I do think that effort and time are separate when they come to like different forms of conservation, conserved energy. But I don't know. What do you think, Nick? I mean, yeah, I, I do think they're different. And it, I mean, so if we're kind of keeping our context within like humans and their like intellectual pursuits or something or like labors, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it as, but um, yeah, I, I, I do think they're different. I guess it depends on whether you consider effort like an active thing, or if you try to take the broader definition of effort, which is kind of like attempt at progress or at, I don't know, attempt at some sort of function of humankind or a section of humankind. Uh, that's, I'm having a hard time defining it, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I do think like there's, there's definitely differences between time and effort. And I think there's also a lot of times where people would say that somebody's wasting time when it's really like a functional thing, right? Like if I take a break to play a video game or something, like I wouldn't necessarily call it a waste of time because it's a serving me a function, which is like relaxation and like decoupling or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think kind of like, let's say about partisan, like tug of war, um, like in the U S so you have like one government group that basically will like implement a policy and another one just goes back and tears it down. And then somebody re-implements it and then tears it down. And it's like society never really fully gets the benefits of either side of it. They're just kind of like back and forth waste of effort, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, (laughs) that makes sense. That stuff concerns me. I agree. I think we are wasting a lot of resources and uh, brain power and focus. Maybe the biggest, the best way to sum it up for me is to say that we are wasting our uh, intention like we, yeah, we that's, are, that's a good word for it. Yeah, because we're not we're not thinking about what would be the best thing for us to do, what would have the best outcome overall, and then how do we approach that, and what should we actually be doing? And like, is it worth spending more time thinking about doing things differently or doing something else entirely instead of just trying to jump in and solve whatever is in front of us? Um, I think that's how I try to frame out whenever I'm doing anything. When I get bored of something, that's the first thing I start doing is like, is it worth doing this anymore? And what could I be doing differently or whatever? Um, but partisanship is not good. <laughs> <laughs> it leads to waste. Yeah. Um. <laughs> What's the most waste? Like, what, what are some things that were on your mind? Because I think you brought this up because maybe you have something on your mind that you want to think about for your own waste or in, in life or what you're working on. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I again, it's it's hard to categorize things as waste or not, but like science 
science and research scientific community like there's kind of this incentive um, for labs to it's called the big like grant cycle or the big like whatever rat wheel rat race something whatever science gets into which is like this like cycle where it's like a lab can only exist if they're bringing in government grants because the government grants are paying for the lab and institution to exist and there's just like constant pressure to like score new grants and you only score new grants by proposing new research questions but sometimes like your research hit a dead end or like there's not an interesting research question to ask kind of related to what you did and so scientists sometimes end up creating, I would, I would say, kind of uninspired <laughs> research questions. And I would consider that like a waste of effort in some ways. Now, there's this whole concept that every new fact that we learn in science is useful because we build off of it and you build these layers and you stand on the shoulders of giants or whatever. Um, but... At the same time, like a lot of science, for example, goes into trying reconfirming others' hypotheses, which is like a good thing to do, but it's like, what's the right amount of that to do? Nobody's mm-hmm. really sat there and planned what the right amount of that to do is. So surely there's like some amount of waste in how often we like pay people for them to do that and then like them spending their intellectual effort and like whatever focus doing that. So I think that's like one area that I kind of see it in. And then the other example that kind of sticks concretely to me is like anytime there's like opposing forces or actions there's like inherently some amount of waste (laughs) because there's like canceled effort um Mm. which is like kind of concerning to me too but that's tough when you have so many different viewpoints (laughs) yeah and then and then in that case i feel like rather than trying to find some median point where everyone can just get along and and we can all be happy about a, a shared solution we should just do our separate things if possible like that's why culture exists, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you are naturally driven to be in an environment and a culture that uh, reflects how you like to live or think about certain things and not worry about others. This is why you and I uh, don't live in um, Iraq or something. Like, right. It's not on the top list of locations for us to move currently um, for different reasons, but... Yeah, I think I think there are many different kinds of waste. And um, when I sum it up, for me, it's like nothing in life really... Like you can't just say that something matters more than something else or that there's like a grand purpose for everything. And thus, there are endless ways to argue justification for one thing or another if you want to think about it philosophically long enough. But... Um, the most important thing personally is to find what brings you the most like intrigue and joy and curiosity uh, and motivation to be like productive and interested in, in following through with something that you really enjoy doing. So uh, that means that you can find some path of efficiency and sustainability in that pursuit be that in physical tools you need or in energy and time. Um, but like staying on that pursuit and then getting better at it. And if you're a designer producing something, that means putting that into the, the things that you create in the world for other people to use. And if you're a medical surgeon, that might mean uh, like pursuing the most efficient way to 
do something with accuracy or maybe looking at different models mm. to do things differently, whatever it is. Um, like staying on that pursuit is the most important and your everyday consumer choices, you should just do as much research as you have time to fit in against that model that makes sense and then make strong, quick decisions about that and don't make the same mistakes twice. Like <laughs> I, I very purposefully have bought a lot of things that um, I discovered I didn't want or didn't like or that didn't feel right in my relationship to them. So I slowly catered uh, to only own very specific objects, which I keep on a list so that I know exactly mm-hmm. every single little item that I own. And I care very deeply about everything that I own. And if it doesn't meet a very high standard, I either sell it used or recycle it if possible. And then buy a replacement that I consider to be higher, more useful and uh, something that I'm going to use consistently. And that mm-hmm. makes me both feel good. And also I know that, um, I'm going to enjoy the things that I use more than I would otherwise. And I've discovered that from throwing away a lot of stuff in the past, unfortunately, but that's just how it works. I guess you have to learn as, as you go. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Yeah. There's, there's been times, for example, speaking of learning from mistakes where it's like, I found out that certain packaging options that I had originally understood to be more sustainable because they're marketed that way, like aren't. Uh, So like waxed paper containers, for example, is one and uh so i've like tried to take steps in my life to like help reduce my use of those even though i really like the stuff that comes in those wax paper containers i found ways to kind of like make it at home for example and use um so for example i try to like make nut milks when i can um i don't always do it but try to be better (laughs) getting better um i think there's a lot of steps everybody can look at in their life and try to identify kind of like high yield areas for them to take action in but i think like you said probably the most useful one the first step is to just be conscious about what you choose to acquire or like encourage to be produced as a first step yeah definitely uh not everyone can be perfect so don't just don't get to a point where you're like ah it's too hard so i'm just not going to care about anything anymore that's the worst place to be just take little steps if you can um and why are you doing it right because there's not really a justification necessarily for everything well because uh it will make everything better as far as the world you can go out into moving forward yeah more total resources to be shared amongst everybody (laughs) Yeah, for all more... sorts of cool new things in the future. Totally. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you feel like a wasteful person, Nick, or do you feel pretty good? I feel on a global scale wasteful on like a meso scale or kind of like mid-level scale uh pretty good. And on like a more local scale like very good. <laughs> which is to say my total culture and the amount of stuff that i like use because i own a car and i buy an iphone and like i get stuff delivered to me online is like quite wasteful in the scheme of like how i think people in the world could live and how many people do live um Mm-hmm. That said, within the U.S., I think I 
tend to make efforts to buy things locally and like minimize shopping trips and buy stuff that is sustainable. Like I, speaking of economics, I spend a lot more because I can on stuff that I feel like, or has been told is like sustainable and uses sustainable materials. And like, I take efforts in that direction. I also think I probably consume less than a lot of people. I don't, I basically avoid single use plastics, especially in like things that are really explicitly made to be single use, like for example, plastic cutlery and stuff. I take a lot of actions to like avoid those things. And so I think on that kind of scale, I'm pretty good. Um, so that's kind of, I guess why I kind of like separate the two. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You kind of have to, because again, you're forced in the environment that you live in to only have certain choices, right? Which makes it really difficult. Yeah. Um, I think I feel somewhat similar, but I, I feel quite good about my consumer decisions because I, again, put a, a lot of effort into research and making sure that I care about the things I get. But then when I get something that's in a lot of packaging or like I just have to get rid of certain things that go along as a byproduct of things that I buy and I just, I hate that. And there's just no way out yeah. from it. Like I was thinking about this today because I bought, I only have one pair of boots now and I needed another pair of boots for winter that were like more waterproof. And so I went out and bought some today and I was thinking about how they have to come in this box with this extra bag and like, there's just mm-hmm. all this extra stuff. I could have just taken them from the store as boots. No questions yeah. asked. I didn't need that box. I didn't need anything else. And I would have been yeah. fine. Like, why does why do no shoe companies do that? Why don't they just give you the shoes and say, this is what you get. And if they're going to ship it to your house online, why is there just, why not just one box instead of a box inside of a box? Like, there's just so many things right. that didn't have to be that, that were from a I mean, you don't even see them in the box on the shelf that when you go into the shoe store, they're out anyway, out of the box. It's they ridiculous. put them in a box to hand it to you so <laughs> yeah. that you could take them out of the box. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. There's a lot of things like that. And it, some, some of them you can stop, right? Like, uh, so for example, at the grocery store, like maybe they're checking you out and they try to put something in a bag that doesn't need to be in a bag. And I'm just like, no, I'll take that. <laughs> but then like, <laughs> there's some that you can't, you can't stop the boots that they, I don't know, pull out of the back room that have been boxed or like whatever. I don't know. Yeah. If I want to buy Kiwis here, they have to come in this paper sleeve with plastic around them sealed. There's no other way to buy Kiwis. It's the only way to buy Kiwis here. It's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry I brought up Kiwis because I know you're allergic yeah, to terrible. Kiwis. I'm sorry. I forgot. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, there's what why is it that certain things have to come a certain way? I think that uh making the packaging also the shipping box and then making that very minimal and recyclable is like the best case mm-hmm. scenario. That's what everybody should right. strive for. I want to make my next game boxes that. So there's just this outside box and there's a tab you pull to make it op- open into a telescoping box and or there's like never going to be on that. Imagine the board game board itself is the box and it like magnetizes to itself so then yeah. you just like and it folds out and that's your board game board and that's the box and that's all the pieces in it and it even ships like that what that is awesome <laughs> yeah why why not that's great nick yeah you, you should you should make that <laughs> I should, yeah, I should. <laughs> yeah go back to designing board games um, um do we have any like 
<laughs> it's almost Lessons. it's not yeah it's not sad <laughs> talking about this like i am i'm hopeful about the future and what we can do but there's like a, a lot of hills to overcome do we have any any positive messages or like takeaways or something that like we didn't talk about what people can do every day to help other than making some consumer decisions but like what are some positive takeaways? What are things that people can look to or or start thinking about that will maybe make a better shift in the mindset of humanity? <laughs> well, I, th- I mean, I think one point that I'll make is that like the reason we get to have the liberty to sit here and talk about sustainability and waste being such a, a good thing to pursue or such a problem, respectively, is because humankind has already ter- started to turn an eye towards it. Like, if you and I lived 60, 70 years ago, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation because it's really not something culture thought about at that point. But I think there's a big culture and movement worldwide to like think about this more. And so I think um, as our generation grows up and just in general, people move forward, I think there's only going to be more and more attention to this on all of those different levels of responsibility that we talked about. And so I think, I mean, like I said, even though it's, it's kind of sad to talk about. I think the future looks like bright actually um, for the sustainability front. I think there is like in general, the trend is towards more sustainability. It's not like humankind I think is, I think we're getting more wasteful and that we're maybe getting, there's like this increased consumer culture thing, (laughs) but I think at least in a lot of these different ways we've talked about more kind of um, intelligent and like better design and stuff. I think there's a positive trend. So my, my first response is that, um, I guess my second response on like, I don't know what you want to get at, kind of like actions to take or things to do. Um, like you said, I think it's just like looking at your own consumer behaviors and seeing the the, the most efficient step to reducing waste is just to not consume anything at all. Like I don't have to worry about the packaging if I never acquire the good inside of it either, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I think looking at just like specific areas of your life at where you can use less is probably the most efficient thing. Yeah. I think that's a good, a good, uh, mindset to take away. I would, I would say for me, um, sit down and look at every single thing that you own and like write it down on a piece of paper, like every little thing. If if you have 12 Q-tips, write down 12 Q-tips. Um, I do this every couple of months and it, It really helps because I sometimes the list gets long because I have all these little one-time use things or consumable stuff or stuff that's been in my cosmetics case. And I'm just blown away that the list goes on for four pages instead of the normal two or the normal one. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I really am cognizant of that uh, as I use those things and don't replace them because I'm not using them very often. Um, So that's a really, a really positive, powerful thing you can do. And then, um, sit down and actually rate everything that you have that you own. Like how much on a scale of one to 10, do you actually like this thing? Like how much do mm-hmm. you enjoy it? And is it useful to you? Uh, and then give it a rating for me, anything that I rate under an eight, I either replace or get rid of because I don't care enough about it. Um, mm-hmm. and because of that, everything is like an eight to a 10. Most things are, are a nine or a 10 that I own and I just love interacting with everything that I have. And I think that that is a really nice, beautiful thing. And I, I don't want to get rid of it because of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, that would be the first thing that I would say that you can do. That's really useful. And the second thing, um, would be to think in a mindset of 
sustainability rather than a mindset of waste. So if you're thinking about mm-hmm. getting rid of things and uh, consuming things and they, they go into the trash or they go um, maybe into the closet or the storage room or your mm-hmm. storage facility, whatever, um, don't think about I'm throwing away, I'm creating waste, I'm a bad person, waste is coming mm-hmm. out of this. Rather than that, mm-hmm. think about, um, okay, all these things that I'm interacting with, everything I'm touching and using, how can that either fit into a, a model of sustainability or how can I change my patterns in order to make all future interactions something that is sustainable? Um, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so shifting that mindset from waste to sustainability, both you're gonna have a better positive outlook on yourself, which gives you more power to improve and feel good about mm-hmm. what you're doing as you go. Um, and it also like lets you think about the model differently rather than just thinking about waste versus non-waste. Um, so yeah. those would be my two, my two tips, I would say. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think examples for like, as an example, something, a decision I made on that recently is like, I bought a humidifier, um, cause winters are super dry here in Utah, but, uh, I made sure to buy a humidifier that has like a washable filter. Right. So I'm not like generating like all these filters. So I've like created this, like I've created a condition that makes it easier to be sustainable into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is what's kind of interesting about like the zero waste movement is it's like, it's like a semi misnomer in some ways, right? Because it's like the word is so focused on waste, but it's really focused on that idea that you just talked about this idea of sustainability. So it's like, okay, how do, how can I choose products or like do the same types of actions in my life in a more sustainable way? So it's like, yep. okay, you need to clean your counters. Do you have to buy the new plastic bottle of cleaner every time? Or can you buy like a bigger bottle that you like then can like reuse or like use components of or like whatever, or can you like, use a lemon to clean your counters like whatever like there's all yeah. sorts of like funny things but yeah yeah when you're when Lots you of options. have constraints like that too your creativity goes wild and you really start enjoying and thinking about stuff at a different scale like you, you can use um vinegar to just do so many things that you didn't know mm-hmm. about not to get too hippie on everyone but you know yeah, yeah, yeah. vinegar and lemon juice <laughs> will go real far and it'll smell much better than the other chemicals you have waiting to uh, infest your food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah. So I think there's lots of good actions people can take that really, when you start to explore them, aren't, there's not so much effort. Yeah. And you don't need to put some insane standard on yourself and then like try to lie to everybody about it either. Because yeah, I saw this girl on YouTube that was saying she had a zero waste lifestyle for a year. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, let's see how accurate this is. She said she had thrown zero things away for an entire year. And mm-hmm. I was, I didn't believe it. And then I went and started watching the video. And the first thing she brought up was, so there was only one thing that I couldn't uh, get away with um, not throwing away. And that was condoms because you can't, there's just no way around it. That's the only way you can use them. And I was like, I don't know about that. Uh, what's next? So then she pulls out this little pile of trash, like just little papers and receipts and like weird stuff and she's like this is all the trash i've made i kept it all so i would know how much i had it was like less than a handful of stuff i still didn't believe uh-huh. it uh, and then she went on to try to say that she had not used any packaging thrown anything away she'd reused everything and like it was all good and i just don't believe it like i don't think you can live in the united states and not produce trash just period it's not possible um, no, it'd be, it'd be very, very difficult and you'd have to have access to a lot of like, um, you'd either have to like a very strange lifestyle, like live in the forest and like not bathe and like whatever, yeah. <laughs> or you'd have to like, um, have access to a ton of like kind of raw materials, 
which is like pretty difficult for most people or too impossible probably but yeah, yeah you have to I live think in the that's forest. <laughs> I think people are pressured to try to like it, it's it's that whole like all or nothing thing to, too people do it with diets right they're like oh I failed this one day so now I'm just gonna like binge eat or whatever and it's you do, you don't have to do that with your diet you don't have to do that with sustainability like make the best decisions you can all the time with the level of effort that you can commit to that and always try to improve <laughs> Like, yeah you don't need to hit, set some hard line where it's like oh i can't figure out whether this shirt i bought is using sustainable whatever fabrics and therefore i'm just not going to give a shit about anything <laughs> like yeah it's not how it should work <laughs> yeah you can only some things you can only take so far but just keep trying and keep thinking about them the most important thing is that they're on your mind and you're actually yeah. like, making decisions as you go and make sure that you feel good about taking the time to make decisions too. You don't want to run yourself down trying to feel bad about that. Apparently some Gen Zers, ugh, Gen Zers, apparently, <laughs> apparently some Gen Zers are um, getting extreme depression about climate change and consumerism. I've, I've been reading in articles recently. So uh, just hang in there, Gen Zers. It's going to be okay. Little babies. <laughs> oh gosh. Zoomers. <laughs> no, I don't care about, um, <laughs> generations but i just think it's funny that like people get thrown into these categorizations and apparently <laughs> gen z age is supposed to be the ones that are getting depressed about climate change millennials are depressed about not being able to buy a house and having poor economic outlook um baby boomers <laughs> are just sad about everything i guess <laughs> i don't know i don't know what all the stigmas are anymore but um <laughs> let's just all be a little more sustainable and calm down <laughs> sounds good <laughs> 